For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. What have you been up to? I've been so busy. It's good. Although what wasn't good is that I skipped last week's podcast. Oh, God. It's very hard to stay on top of these things when you're a one-woman band. But that is okay. I am proud of what I achieved last week. I launched my new book in Australia, Where Next? We did two amazing party events. We had one in Sydney at the Powerhouse Museum and one in Melbourne at Future from Waste Lab, which I'm going to share all about in an upcoming newsletter. It's amazing. So it's been a bit of an unofficial Aussie book tour. I'll be back in Melbourne at the Wheeler Centre next Friday as part of their Spring Fling programme, which has some amazing talks if you want to join. I've also got my book launch in Brisbane coming up. So I'll put links in the show description or follow me on Instagram. You know where to find me at Mrs Press for more. But through all this, I have, of course, been keeping my eye on the runways and news from Fashion Month. What have been your favourites so far? if you've been at the shows or watching them online or just on social media. In London, Finn and Omi, they debuted a new plant fabric collaboration with King Charles III, this time at his Sandringham estate. And it was using the butter burr plant. Who knew? It's a large-leafed shrub that grows next to ponds. Best pun... (laughs) goes to the Times, who praised Finn and Omi's avant-gardening. Get it? I'm sorry, I just love it. (laughs) They also did uh, fabric made from scrap wood chips scavenged from royal residences. You can read more about them in Where Next, they're in the book, and you can go back and listen to their extremely fun episode back from series eight. What else? Well, you know, Vogue did the splashiest thing. It was a big performance, a night out. It was called Vogue World. It was directed by Baz Luhrmann. I wanted to hate it, but it was actually spectacular. And I watched the entire live stream. So there you go. The power of Baz. (laughs) Emerging names to watch. Okay, I've got a list here. So a couple. Hari. He uses sustainable latex and it's produced on a family rubber plantation, I reckon. I have to check that, but I'm sure I read that last time. But it's all about very exaggerated volumes and with deep sustainability at its heart. Very interesting. Helen Kirkham is one I wanted to mention She's been on the podcast too. She's also in Where Next. She's famous for her upcycled sneakers. But I liked how she added bags this time. Um, Oh yeah, Hector McLean. Now this guy is a Scot who used to work at the House of Alexander McQueen. I loved his show. I've never seen it before. I haven't ever met him. He used all these recycled off-cut and donated fabrics. It was very sculptural, very beautiful cuts. Very interesting. There's also this whole thing in the news about Sarah Burton leaving McQueen. She'd been there 13 years and she is obviously totally brilliant. I mean, quietly wonderful. I love her work. She's also very, I say quietly because she doesn't shout about it, but she does a lot of stuff about sustainability behind the scenes. She supports students. She's fabulous. So she'll be much missed. And then there's this hoo-ha in the media because her successor is yet another white man and people are cross. I might comment on this in our newsletter this week. In Milan, hmm, what? Oh yeah, Marnie. My favourite was Marnie. Did you see it? They were like these sculptural metal collaged flowers. And that sounds clunky. <laughs> and it was, it kind of was, but it was also absolutely delightful. All handmade, totally impractical. You can't sit down, whatever. you got to stand up and feel like an art piece. And that's the thing, right? 
in the runway world who saw J.W. Anderson's plasticine hoodies and shorts. <laughs> Strictly for standing up. What else? Oh, Milan ended with the Sustainable Fashion Awards. More controversy there. This time around, why is it that big brands always win the big awards? Maybe we'll discuss this next time. Tell me on social media what you think about that. Paris, I haven't watched too much of this. I did see a tinsel gown at Radate that gave me the plastic shivers. It's very, like, beautiful, and I think Radate very clever, magical. But I just wish we'd see sustainable materials. It's time to call time on plastic, right? Talking of which, I am obviously all about Stella McCartney holding what she called Stella's Sustainable Market as part of her show in Paris. It is a lovely idea. They had stalls with 21, I believe, uh, sustainable textile innovators and practitioners and just people she's worked with showing their stuff to a new audience. So she's elevating these people. She's giving them space. She's cheering them on. I love it. She said in her show notes, Summer 24, the collection is rooted in family, freedom and fluidity, inspired by music and Stella's parents' shared wardrobe, both on and off stage. And that's lovely too, isn't it? Like a subtle sustainability message about the shared wardrobe. Nice. And also she said 95% conscious materials were used, making it our most responsible edit to date. And she did a collab with Andrew Logan. Did you see that? Do you remember Andrew Logan? He was on the show last series, episode, I think it's 171, we'll share a link. He's like been my hero for years. He's super underground. The establishment just don't know about him, even though he's been around for 50 years and he's a proper legend. So I did wonder, did Stella or someone in Stella's office listen to our interview? <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, either way, however they met or know each other, good on them for elevating Andrew Logan's genius work and introducing him to a new, broader audience. You know, millions of people across the world look at Stella's Instagram. Now, Andrew, to me, he represents something very, like, oh, it's, it's similar with the guest we have on this week. It's like, if you know him, you know and you're obsessed but his work is so outside of the sight line of most mainstream fashion commentary that people just don't know that he's there setting all the trends before everyone else does because he doesn't play the game. So my guest this week is another absolute one-off, a pioneer and a proper fashion genius. He is JJ Hudson, the artist behind Dr. Noki. I hope people listen to this and reach out to do collabs with him. He has done collaborations with some quite big names in the past but again it's quite underground so yeah I feel like amidst all the commercial noise and celebrity emptiness and all that circus that you get with the fashion month shows these days it's all for me about trying to pinpoint the artists who go their own way and actually maybe they tend not to get all the credit and all the headlines that they're the ones I love the most will not be news to you <laughs> All right, Noki. His London Fashion Week show for Spring 24 was called Process and billed as Noki Nest with two T's presents Tin Can Custom Crew. What? <laughs> well, Nest stands for Noki Education of Sustainable Textiles and Technology. And it's his new school for high school students and young fashion designers to teach them how to do his custom builds. That's what he calls his upcycling. He doesn't like the word upcycling. 
when I went to visit him, we went for a bit of a walk and he kept stopping to collect cans off the road that they've been crushed by cars. And he said, this is a useful material, Claire. For the show, Tin Can Custom Crew was actually about the audio experience with Super Scratch Sundays and these portable JBL speakers. So all the models carried one for their own personal dance party. (laughs) You gotta love it. So he's known for what he calls these custom builds. He's always used trash and whatever he finds lying around to make his collections, but also secondhand sportswear. That's his big thing. And the other big thing is his signature masks. And I'll let him explain how and why he does this. He always wears a mask in public, by the way. So I had the rare privilege of seeing behind it. Now, this is how the Face magazine described Dr. Noki a few years ago. They said, he's about as anti-fashion as they come, running riot since the 80s with the likes of Judy Blame and Catherine Hamnett. Little did they know they were spearheading a fashion revolution. Today's fashion writers who were into sustainability are now discovering him. And last year, Hypebeast heralded Noki as a tried and true member of the sustainability movement, arguably a founder of the word before it even really became a thing. So, in our interview, we ask, does he relate to that? How does he see his work? What inspired it back in the 90s London rave scene? And what does he hope for the next generation of artistic upcyclers, or as he uses the word, custom builders or culture jammers, who want to use fashion as a political statement maker, as well as a way to connect with the people around them, rather than this kind of hyper-commercial fashion month thing? All good questions. Before we begin, just a quick thank you to my friend Tamara Jinchik for introducing us. She's another one who's always ahead of the game. And if you want more of Tamara, we'll share a link to her wardrobe crisis ep from way back in series three. Now, let's get the train to Hove near Brighton because we're late for our appointment with Dr. Noki. Just one more thing. There are some drug references in this And I did leave the odd swear word in the edit, I think. So if you've got little ones with big ears around, maybe check first if you think it's appropriate listening for them. Okay, let's go. Should I do it in my mask? Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting a rare glimpse of you that is maskless, but that's because this is an audio experience. This is an audio experience, exactly. Well, I mean, the mask is purely, I didn't want to be in mask publicity as a face because the mask is about, hypocrisy it's called the soft mask suffocation of branding we're all being suffocated by it and this is my visual representation of my suffocation we're gonna get into that for some people you know what i mean i'm like well i'm not suffocated i love it and wear it and it makes me somebody it gives you know it makes me i can you know i go to kids go i go to parties and everybody likes me because i've got an adidas t-shirt on you know i mean it's like it's so deep and rotten you know I think we've got ahead of ourselves because I'd like to welcome you to the podcast first. Hello. How are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Noki, thank you for joining us. We're in your studio next door. We're in Hove, close to Brighton in the UK. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just start by telling us what it means to you? My studio is a sanctuary of, um, I'd say, mental, positive mental health. I always wish that we could make... A video of this podcast because sometimes you see extraordinary things not just your outfit but i'm literally facing two <laughs> two thing hands, thing hands mm. like little rubber models mm. of 
hands cut off at the wrist, you know, from well, the, the monsters. The, from the Adam's family. Adam's right? family. Yes, I presume. <laughs> they're, they're zigs, they're not mine. I'm surrounded <laughs> by Lego heads and superheroes and uh, lampshades. Yeah, he makes, he makes... No idea why. And many... But this is zigs walls, not mine. <laughs> many pieces of textile waste. <laughs> Since we can't see you, what are you wearing? Um... Everything's customised, always has been. I've customised everything to give it a unique stance. Um, I start with my chain. My so big silver hip-hop chain, I suppose. It has the um, a, a, a medallion on it that says, came, came from a dad bracelet with an A welded to it. So the, You've made a dad bracelet into a, Dada. Dada, yeah. So Dada is my art philosophy. I want to get into that, but what else have you got on there? So, uh, so I have a I have an, an Adidas T-shirt that is the the A, and the AS has been removed, so it's just the word "did." And I have a Nike badge, which is a badge made from a Nike T-shirt that's been changed to Nike. So the narrative on my T-shirt and graffitied on the T-shirt is this: so when you see me, Claire, you read Nike did this. So my clothing is has a different narrative while utilising the amazing words and graphics that have been pumped at us at myself ever since 88. So I'm an old raver from 88. I was 17, 18. Um, so I first heard, you know, Acid House, that noise, that noise of special noise that Acid House has. And I was one of those hands in the air ravers. What came with that was you know, branded clothing, baggy branded clothing, early androgyny. You know, the whole concept to begin with was to create what's called the Nokizine. So it was creating a cloth magazine via using T-shirts. So every so the so the pages were paper were textiles, they weren't paper. And the branding of the T-shirt was changed and augmented and subverted in culture jams. Being a dyslexic, I feared books, but I didn't fear the T-shirt. So I suppose building zines from T-shirts mm. and t textiles felt very natural and very um, comfortable. You were also wearing a leather... A leather customised um, waistcoat, yeah. It was like an arts and crafts one I found many, many, many years ago in a second-hand shop. And what are your shorts? High-end Czech Ralph Lauren cotton shorts that I've been customised into. They were too small for me, so I've extended them and put panels into them. And I so love that. that. I can see them me, that they're pink leopard print. Which came from a Juicy Couture towel. <laughs> um, so they could fit me properly. So they're big, bug, baggy hip-hop shorts now. And industrial boots with checker, my famous checkerboard DD print all over the leather. You've also got on several pairs of walking socks uh -huh. in a layered leg warmer fashion. Lay layered socks, yes. Uh -huh. I like <laughs> a thick layered sock. Um, cotton, high cotton mix ones so they're not sweaty. Um, yeah, so that's my personal and a kind of customised cap. All right, we might use some terms in this conversation that are unfamiliar to listeners because they're completely original to mm -hmm. you. Yeah. So I thought we would start by defining them or decoding them. Yeah. I want to begin with custom builds and mashups because you don't use the term upcycling although the casual observer might go oh it's upcycled yeah i mean these these are modern words that have been been constructed around you know a movement for sustainability or recycling um i've always used I mean, i've been i've been mashing up 
branded textile since 96. So that's why I called it mashup. It was like being in the rave, being mashed up in the rave, I suppose, my brain being a dyslexic brain, you know, um, a troubled brain, because obviously I was a highly bullied kid. As a, You know, I had to fight my own angles and break bullies' bones instead of them breaking mine all the time. So I had to step up and deal with my sexuality. So what, being a gay kid in Aberdeen? Being a gay, gay kid was not an easy thing bullied, at all. So it really? was like, you know, um, well, we could go deep into it. We'll come back to that. All right, so mashup meaning mash up. a lot of different things. What about custom build? Well, mashup comes, you know, the DJs at the time were mashing up records. So I'm hearing, you know, songs that are being mashed up. While I'm in the rave, we physically get mashed up. Um, through drinking drugs and I suppose I saw textiles being moved around and being on acid and mushrooms I was custom building in my brain ideas you know I saw AIDS instead of Adidas I saw Quiru K instead of Reebok I saw filth instead of Fila I saw these narrative words that made me trip and laugh and smile and and you know find joy in in being trippy you know it made me think Noki is it also to do with having dyslexia as some kind of secret superpower because there's something about how words form and play yeah. in your brain that's different Ooh, 100%, isn't it that, I think that's why I loved and I have dedicated my life to a, to the rave lifestyle because it fitted who and what I was and being told at school that I was thick and stupid when I went to the rave down to the frivolous looking great because I was a long-haired, wavy-haired, skinny raver, like that stuff. I, I fitted in there. And, you know, the clothing came along and I was rejecting my brother's world, which was the punk scene. So I wasn't skinny jeans and biker leather jackets and, you know, he was a psychobilly, so he was king of his, his own crew, you know. Before we get into some more definitions, tell us briefly about growing up in Aberdeen. So you, your brother used to take you along to clubs, but they weren't clubs you wanted to go to? Or? Well, no, they were, I was, I was baby... Were ba- they rough pubs? I was babysat that way from the age of 13. So I was taken to his, you know, punk clubs um, in Aberdeen, a place called The Venue, where I'd see, you know, the... I, I saw cramps, you know, the cramps at the Did age... Did you? Oh. Yeah, you know. Sorry, but just, the, if Matt, if my husband's listening to this, well, he'll be listening to it now. Yeah. <laughs> well, exciting. I saw the cramps at the age of fourteen. I think I was fourteen, and the cult at the age of fourteen. So, and then I saw King Cart, Guanabats, all those kind of psychobilly bands. What was Aberdeen like in the eighties? Well, what you can imagine, it was full of oil industry, Americanisms, yeah. and 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 quite buoyant, very very buoyant. You know, it was producing oil for. Britain. It was making GDPs beyond GDP, you know, for Britain. So it was very buoyant and it was also full of American-isms. Yeah, yeah, because the Americans came across to pump it, you know. So there was like bud bars and shot bars and, you know, the clubs were full of champagne decked, wow, you know, shelving. Really? Yeah, Aberdeen was really, really buoyant and it had money because it was also the guys, the young people worked in, in agriculture, so there was a lot of money, a lot of money in Aberdeen. Like mm. it was, it was the most expensive place to live outside London was back it? in the eighties. I didn't yeah. know that. So it was. So the clubs and bars were buoyant, you know, and the music scene and the shops sold. You know, I, you know, we we got Beastie Boys and we got you know the punk. You know, there was great. One Up was one of the places. The other record shop, all that kind of stuff. So there was a really buoyant youth culture scene hip-hop was kicking off you know break dancing was kicking off we were doing all this so we were not devoid even though we were northeast of scotland people were like and id used to come to the club fever 
Did you know. They? And they would go, there's more Vivian Westwood in here than there is in clubs in Aberdeen because Willie Rosedale was a hairdresser that had connections with Westwood because his cousin was a... Sandy Gordon was his Vivian Westwood's pattern cutter. How did you get interested in fashion? Was it the music? I, it was genetic. My dad's a dandy. My mum was beautiful. You know, there was it was not difficult. I, you know, my dad gave me rhythm so I could dance. So, you know, it was just in my nature, you know. Um, I love that you said my dad was a dandy. What did he wear? Well, he was, you know, he was, he was a kind of back in the 50s and 40s and 50s, you know, when suits were going tight, he would take them to his tailor and get them tight. So he would wear them to the local clubs and people would go, where'd you get that suit? You know, they get that suit from. And he'd go, well, that's my business. All he'd done is gone to the tailor and asked the tailor to pull them in. I so he had love, foresight. I know? love hearing these stories about how people put their visual communication and identity together. And you all can think of these people in your lives or even encountered mm. that just have style. Mm. I love that he went and got it made. Mm. Well, he just got, like, he's got yeah. the baggy suit taken in. He, he got just, it. You know, so he knew what to do. He was like, this yeah, is what, this is, what this has is to going happen. to be my you know, I'm going to look like that. I'm going to get it done like this. There was, there was no... That, so I'm, I've got that mentality. So I suppose I... You know, fast forward from being in the 80s, going to the 90s train spot in World in Edinburgh when I went to art school there. Um, so I was always in the rave, constantly in the rave. And every time I've seen the rave go toxic, because obviously you, you mix, you know, hedonism up, it, it fucks everybody up, you know. And um, I was just a lucky... I just drank. I was a drunk and a spliffer. I never really got into hardcore drugs, which is the, the bit that buggers people up, you know. All right. Before we come down to London and mm. go out dancing, I've got some more terms that mm. I want us to decode. Mm. What's your version of DNA? You know, people always talk about brand DNA, well, darling. I, I, <laughs> mine, is, mine is direct knocky action. So I chop up. My DNA is like chopping up T-shirts, and I and I was getting a master crochet called Doctor Hook to crochet these pieces up. He was called Doctor Hook. Doctor Hook, yeah. <laughs> and because he, he was a master crochet, but with fine crochet, and I said, well, if I chop up a T-shirt and give you the yarn, what can you do with that? And you know, I got a phone call that night, going, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" And what I do, and what takes me hours and hours and hours, I've just done in. 10 minutes was you know. he an old person he was was elderly he was elder how wonderful he was an elderly he called himself Dr Hook which I think of as obviously an iconic musician yeah. but I love that he was using we his hook we nicknamed him Dr, Dr. Hook cause he how was, old is he his hook. he's now God, he's now 70, I think. How fantastic. I think he's a bit of a, bit of a Peter Pan. He was a kind of 70s disco roller boy back in the 70s, you know what I mean? Um, but he, you know, so DNA for me is direct knocky action. So to chop up a T-shirt, you can transform a T-shirt into something else. So you take it back to its roots of textile yarn and then rebuild it from that, mm -hmm. which I love because, you know, there's always the bits of the brand you chop through when you create the yarn. So there's little glimpses of the past so you've broken nostalgia, basically. He's chopped up nostalgia and you've produced something fresh for the 21st century. Before we were recording, you said that you referred to nostalgia in terms of melancholy. And you said that yes. in and of itself, it's not something to aspire to. Not it's at all. just a kind of bit indulgent. A reflection of the past which you hold on to, do you know what I mean? Which, you allow, which stops you from thinking about the future. And that's interesting in the fashion context because often when we think about sustainability or using old things to in inverted commas, upcycle into mm. new. We are mining the past. And sometimes yeah. as well, not sometimes, all the time, we see brands just mining the past of their collections mm. and just churning out. I remember when I worked in magazines, it would always be like, this season, it's mm. 
the 70s does the 30s. Mm. But that's all just not particularly creative. It's sort of plundering mm. from the past and just saying, let's look at this now. Mm. I just want to be modernist with, with who and what I am. And what I, who and what I am was a raver and I was a brand wearer, you know, so I was a body billboarder, you know, so I... A I, body billboarder, because yeah. you always had Adidas or yeah, Fila on your t-shirt. some brand or other, yeah, exactly. Okay, stop there. Why was the t-shirt so significant to rave culture? Because it fitted. It's like, you know, you're, you're in the rave, it's, you're, you're running around the tr field track sweating, you know, so when you're raving, you're literally using as much cardiovascular as you would if you were doing sports, dancing like a maniac. Was it a kind of r resistance or a reaction to punk or 70s? I think, I think it was practical. For me, it was practical and untouched. You know, you wore sportswear in the sports field and then, you know, the, the 80s was the liberation of travel. So there was a lot of, you know, European brands. I mean, feeling like Adidas, all these were European brands and they, they weren't worn by the last generation of youth culture not in the way we did you know there might have been an adidas t-shirt worn by rastafari as a kind i don't know you see bob marley wearing them now like you know what i mean you look at past and i've done this before and you just see very little brands being worn you know keith Harlan has a nike t-shirt on but we went for the bigger versions you know they weren't wearing tight we'd like you know we went for the more oversized you know that was prized possession was an oversized large so that was a change because everything was probably tight and sexual. Yeah, big baggy Pre raver jeans. I'm thinking about Sean Ryder. Let's not think about Sean Ryder. But big T-shirts, branding, big baggy jeans. Yeah, I mean, track suits and, you know, hoodies and rucksacks. They were part of our uniform because you, when you went to the rave, you got soaking wet. So you had to have a change of clothes, you know. That's for me anyway. It was, it was a, a rucksack. It wasn't a bag. You said before that you were walking billboards. You were also in, so you were inadvertently or maybe you did it consciously, but you were advertising these advertising, brands, yeah. these big corporate brands. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nike yeah. isn't just big and corporate now. It's been a giant, you should read Phil Knight's biography, by the way, I picked it up from the street library not that long ago. I was curious. It's brilliant, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Just the documenting of that time and just how they became so big by partnering with big sports stars in the US. Mm -hmm. And they're just enormous. But by wearing those clothes, you're helping them grow bigger, mm -hmm. not just because you gave them your money to buy it, if you did, <laughs> rather than finding it in a skip, but because you're promoting it. Well, I'm, I mean, I've always been of the mindset that I wanted more from the brand. So I wanted a Nike and Adidas tracksuit. So I shopped up Nike Adidas tracksuits and made Nike and Adidas tracksuits. And, that, you know, I'd stick Gucci in there and bits and pieces for the brand identity, but they're the creations I were creating weren't out there. You know, I had to make them. So the DIY aspect of the rave felt natural. And it was rebellious because a lot of people were like, but you've just ruined that tracksuit, you just ruined that because I put scissors into it and cut it. And my version of it isn't always somebody else's version of what they like. It's just my interpretation of where I cut and remove and then replace. One more word or phrase that I'd like you to explain. Mm. It's landfill drop. Uh -huh. So the landfill drop is, is um, you know, youth culture is now fixated on drops. So every, I've looked, I thought, oh, that's interesting because I've dropped brands into the fashion hemisphere for over 25 years. You know what I mean? So I was intrigued by that. And what was I dropping? 
I was dropping Nokia Custom. I was dropping creativity. I was dropping freedom. I was dropping modernity. But ultimately, the source of that was that everything came from the landfill. So I was dropping landfill. I wasn't adding to landfill. So if you think about modern day branded mashups, they're landfilling up because they're brand, using brand new textiles land to get filling up land filling up what's so, so like fendace yeah and you know so it, I'm, sorry I, if listeners haven't seen that we will share pictures but the cult of recent seasons where big big luxury brands collaborate if you like although it seems more cynical to me than that to make branded mashed up product that costs a fortune it costs a fortune i mean it's 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 it's, it's it's nothing i haven't done since 96 when i was told i was a freak of nature you know what i was doing was wrong because i was destroying branded product um but there was always high-end thinking stylists and photographers and editors that loved what i did they got it they understood i was being an artist and they understood that i had to destroy to rebuild Nucky, the other day, before I came to meet you, I unearthed the very famous picture of Giselle. Giselle oh, Bunchen, wow, the you're mentioning model. that. Thank you. Yeah. 1998, yeah. ID cover story. Yeah. She's wearing a custom... Uh, David Sims. Yeah, right. She's so young. She looks amazing. Yeah. She's a baby. Yeah. And she's wearing a customised champion sweatshirt yeah. of yours. And that, that to me is like... Because I, I, I have a, a big thing for Kiel Lazen's Culture Jam. Um, and he was more about... Oh, advertising, uh, adbusters, the adbusters, and all that. So, when I, for, when, for listeners who don't know what that is, so adbusters was run was a, a movement created by Kiel Lazen, who was a Canadian, a Canadian um, activist who had realised there was an embargo going on within um, information highways, and he would buy plots of land or he would rent plots of land outside, you know, towns and stuff like that, and erect these big effigies that instead of it saying Marlborough man it was saying impotent man you know stuff like that and he would create films and all that kind of stuff so I love that kind of playfulness on pop art in a sense you know they printed a magazine which you could buy in record stores and news agents but back when magazines in print were more of a thing Mm. and their September issue was famously filled with fake ads yes so in a sense when I saw when I read that I felt like I'd found a kindred thought process a spirit of sorts that I wasn't just on my own doing the stuff that was getting laughed at or even taking the piss out of by your mates. By this point, you'd moved to London and yeah. you were living in Shoreditch. You ran the bricklayers' arms. Well, I certainly. Oh, you helped. were behind the bar. I, op- I opened up. The, I helped with Fidoran, the high priestess. She was the DJ at the time. There was a, a blip moment where the bar was potentially going to be opened at the weekend. Um, Marcus Constable was supposed to be doing it and he jumped out of the... and I took over the the slot of managing it while Fee DJ'd and that just allowed the creatives at the time to have a place because it was never open at the weekends. It was just a week weekday bar. Why did you come to London? Um, calling. It had to happen. I didn't leave Aberdeen not to come and move to London, you know, so um, it was a natural progression from studying art school, Edinburgh art school, so it was very heavy on the arts, you know. So oh, I think study the old masters. Well, you know, that, that's what it was famous for, which was in painting, sculpture, ceramics, so textiles. So at what point did you start using cloth as a magazine or as a sculpture? When did you start actually making your own stuff? I was thinking about your dad figured out how, if you wanted to look how he imagined himself, he'd yeah. have to get it done. Yeah. Did, was it like that for you or was it an artistic thing? Yeah, I mean, as I say, I I, I I wanted more from the brand 
and I wanted the mashup to happen instantly. So I basically cut up, as I say, you know, the famous one Nike and Adidas turned Nike into Nokia and Adidas into AIDS. So I was creating a Nokia AIDS campaign in the rave and I'd sew things together so that the narrative was being read differently. And I think I was just being, having fun. I was just literally being hardcore. You know, I, I, mean, I was a hardcore raver. So I was, you know, my, my cultural references, if I see somebody or I hear somebody bigging something up that's just a whitewash of something that's been going on before a ripoff of a ripoff, I hear it, you know, and I hear it all the time. But I guess it's hard to Because I was there sort of, at the time. I was yeah. whole face building at a time when Shoreditch wasn't Shoreditch. So it's, it's, it, it's a curse and a cure. But you it's know? also sort of redundant to try to explain why you did it. You just did it because it was part of what you did yeah. for fun and for life. 100%. And I, but I do like this a lot because I think this is what... It was instinctive. But, but this is what most of interesting fashion started life as. We've done these stories on this podcast before where looking at different eras, but thinking about Taboo in the 80s, how Stephen Jones went there and Galliano was there and they formed their visual identity on the dance floor Lee with Bowery their friends. Lee the master Lee of the mashup, you know what I mean? But that, that's just culture and communication as it happens. So to look back at it and go, why did you do it is a bit... <laughs> yeah, it it's not, can't be explained yeah. because there was no reference points. That's what I mean. Because, because a lot of people say, why did you do it? And they go, well, I'll, I might tell you the truth that I ripped it off the internet, but I'll probably not because I don't want to look like I'm not original. <laughs> but I, I had think... no reference points. There was nothing like Nokia. There was only Culture Beauty and Culture where you had Christopher Nemeth chopping up mail sacks for the reason. I don't know what that is. So the House of Beauty and Culture was, oh, right, yeah. was yeah. John Moore yeah. and Christopher Nemeth was the master of deconstruction. You know, he took mail sacks and made suit jackets out of them um, and clothing. Um, and they had, the post office graphics written on them. So you can imagine how, wow, what's that? You know what I mean? Because the linen made from the, the sacks at the time was of high quality. So he was basically making a high quality linen garment from waste, you know? So he was deconstructing when the concept of, oh, this is the early 80s. Yeah. You know? It's just funny though. I was going to say a better question than why did you do it is how does it seem now from the context of today when we are so obsessed with using waste as a political statement, mm. trying to figure out what sustainability looks like in the business of fashion. But mm. it's so interesting, isn't it, to look back at all the, you know, if you're listening to this, particularly if you're a young designer and you think that upcycling is this contemporary phenomenon that just came out of the climate crisis. No, it goes back to... Make do and mend. It goes way, 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 way back. I mean, I have a philosophy, but people ask me, um, where do you think branding came from? And mm -hmm. I go right back to Neolithic times when community was still bonding. It was bonding, it was, you know, it was having children, it was creating campsites, it was building architecture. Um, you know, they were c killing the passive rabbit for its pelt um using its fine bones as needles and threads but and were they right were they trying to brand or name it i'll tell you a funny mm. story i was in i was on holiday mm. i was on holiday in mallorca last week and i was walking down this wonderful mountain track in these it's a unesco world heritage site it's absolutely incredible and there's no one around there's all these ancient olive trees and then there was a massive old cactus like a hoary old huge one mm. And everybody, many people had carved their names and mm. who they loved into the bloody cactus. So it was like, Vanessa loves Bruno. Mm. And I thought, humans have got this instinct to put their name on stuff. You see it in ancient graffiti in the cave mm. paintings mm. or it, 
it is this idea that we want to stake a claim to it. It's me, I, I Claire, well, I did this. So I actually think that is probably where branding comes from, that you, you want to claim well, think, it as your own I, somehow. I mean, you're talking about words there. I'm talking pre-words. I'm talking about visual identity. So we're killing the rabbit, society's built, the cooking on the fire, the smells are going around, and all of a sudden there's a worry because people are being picked off. There's a death happening. And we realise there's a saber-toothed tiger patrolling society. Now, who steps up to kill that? The society has to. It's already waiting to go and kill the saber-toothed tiger, the pelt of the passive rabbit. Easy killed, easy found, many of them saw them together. But they weren't branding it, they were just using it for practical reasons. The branding's a modern name. I'm talking about visual. Go right back, forget what we live through now, go back to then. So there was a rabbit with a pelt and it has different colours and a different it's soft and all the rest of it. So the rabbit's being worn and it's been practical and it's just instinctive to keep warm, um, eat and try and use and celebrate the whole animal as one. So even the fine bones are used as needles and threads, sinews for thread. And as I say, the saber-toothed tiger's patrolling, killing and picking off. So its society has to then try and get rid of this predator. So they kill the saber-toothed tiger. Now that pelt is a completely different pelt. That jawline is a completely, that bones are completely different. So they're doing the same process by disassembling the animal. And that pelt alone is hairier, thicker, different colour. And who would wear it would be the person that killed it. The most powerful. As so it's status. Yeah, so the yeah. status is branding. Yeah. Branding is status. Uh, it's power. It's an extension of power. It's a visual identity because that pelt looks a certain way. And then the person that has killed it is revered as being powerful. The youth culture of that time want to be as powerful as the master that's wearing the cult, you know, with mm-hmm. necklace, disassembled teeth. And he will give a single tooth to a young'un as part of an extension of the power. <laughs> so that's as near as I can get to wondering where this visual identity comes so powerfully instinctively within our DNA because it comes from serious amounts of like constant need for power. Mm. All right, let's fast forward then to the 90s where you were talking about your formative time in rave culture. That was a time when consumerism and the power of these big brands was being hijacked by activists. You mentioned adbusters. There was a lot of other stuff going on around that time. If you think about, was, I think we've Reclaim talked about streets, this before. You Occupy Wall Street, No Logo, that stuff. If, mm. When we talk about fashion revolution as being like this Michael this Wars, white, white men, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it did, fashion revolution didn't come just out of Rana Plaza. Like there was no. the sweatshop stuff with Nike and all those protests mm. 20 years before. I mean, you've got Catherine E. Hamnett was doing stuff, you know. For me, this is what goes on. For me, it's purely about being modern. When I was chopping up Nike, Adidas and Fila, 20 years later now we have Gucci, Adidas. So it's nothing new to me, but to a new generation, it's a brand new object to be aspiring and the desirable and where to be cool. Um, for me, it's a little bit tundra, and a bit sort of like, and it's a bit like, like the melting polar caps is a bit like that for me. You know, it's not cool. It's melting, <laughs> you know. <laughs> All cool, right, but- cool is when it's, not cool. But but <laughs> now there is this overlay of sustainability context on all of this stuff that when you were first doing this, you weren't powered by sustainability. No. But now... The word recycling was, was used, you know. That was a word that you could do. And, but I didn't think 
I, I always thought my work was so modern, it wasn't even classed as recycling. But it was political and it still is political and it is also reclaimed because you're using dead stock or landfill wood diverted from landfill. I know you work with a guy in East London, what is he called, Ross Barry? Aha. Uh-huh. Do you yeah, get your stuff from yeah, him? Yeah, so he's, so he's a recycler. He has, LMB, a, he has right? an industrial recyclist. Yeah, so I get I get donations from him. So I get stuff from so, and it comes from London. I quite like the fact that it's a like a London thing, and it you know it's leftovers from people. So it's kind of like, you know, you get the flot, flotsam and jetsam of of consumerism from a town or a city. You know, a mega city. That's very know, good at consumerism. Very, very, very good, and also advertised. So there's a kind of artistic endeavour within that that you're literally taking it from the source of of marketeering and branding and cool and, you know, streetwear and, you know, London itself. Do you care about the waste warrior aspect of it? Do you care about the sustainability? I care I care enough to know that it's sustained my mental health and everything I've made for nearly 25 years has a micro footprint, yes. Um, to the point where I don't even use an iron and if I was to use an iron, that would be a an additive to my footprint, you know, so I've kind but do of... do you think about it in those terms? Well, I have because I've got students that push and push and push and the new generation are micromanaging every footprint that is going. So, yes, I, I do think only because I'm being pushed into thinking about my integrity or my authenticity to the cause, you know, which is built up recently in the last 10 years. So in 2008, I created the NHS for Lulu Kennedy's Fashionist. So that was the Nokia House of Sustainability. And that was an ironic statement. Well, you were using that word then, which, yeah. yeah. 2008. So that was an ironic, because I was, you know, Lulu was a mate of mine and she went, she, you know, basically begged me to do it. Build one of your collections and we'll have an installation and whatever you want to call it, just do it. Because I, I want to bring the Fashionist back to Shoreditch. And it was they found a floor in the Truman Brewery and she went if you did it then it would make it very authentic and I was like okay so let's and I thought well, I went away and I was like right so Noki I'm building a fashion house it's all a bit of a piss take and a bit of a laugh at the time um, I'm entering the fashion industry there's a bit of funding behind it which was handy at the time because I've always just done all kinds of other odd jobs to keep my you know he's still doing odd jobs Noki you're going to go and work on a building site exactly so I mean it's like so the NHS was built because it, I put words together. So it was Noki, Fashion House, Sustainability. And I went, oh, that's the NHS. And I went, oh, wow. The NHS came out of the war to try and do something democratic for the people. Um, my philosophy is around about dadism. And that was very much about breaking systems to try and like expose hypocrisies to the people. Um, so it felt natural. Two things. Lulu Kennedy is the founder of Fashion East. It's an amazing incubator of young talent at London Fashion Week. It's the show that everybody always goes to. I always make sure I don't miss it. And you know that the people that she works with are going to be really interesting yeah. creatives. No, she's a genius. She's lovely. Yeah. And, and as I say, we were mates back in the days when we were just kicking about Shoreditch, you know. So I have a high, high regard and love for her. And I'm really glad I did do it because I would have been probably quite static because the art world are not willing to deal with my textile transferal from paper to t-shirt because Mm -hmm. it's, I don't know whether it's naive or it's stupid or it's just frivolous. I don't know. So I can't really find a curator that will sit and listen and understand where I'm coming from as an art, art, as a collage artist. You mentioned Dada. Yeah. If listeners don't know what this is, maybe you remember or have seen poetry that has been formed by cutting up 
the pages of books. But mm. tell us, how did you first encounter it? What is it? And why do you like it? Um, going to art school, you're asked to research art history. I always, I always just veered towards dadism because it suited my dyslexia. I would read dadism collages and it. it's just nonsense. The collages of words. Collages of words. So of existing they would, printed they words, right, yeah. Their sacrilege was at that time cutting up books um, and pamphlets and then just pulling, you know, words out of a bag and just sticking them down as In they randomly came out. So it was very... 1930s? Dog. No, turn of the century. Earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just 1906, that kind of stuff. So I visually understood it, but didn't understand it. Just like I'd still find it hard to read books and I have to go back over a lot so you know I'm very good with films and all that kind of stuff because obviously it's a very visual but I suppose dadism you know they were taking some some artists were taking like a stool and then sticking a bicycle wheel on it so the stool still functions as a stool but only because it's got the white bicycle wheel on it but the white wheel didn't go anywhere so it was always trying to question consumerism I suppose uh, uh, even back then at that time mm. but you've got to remember these um, amazing artists whose names I apologise I can't because they're, they're hardcore names you know um, and I can never remember them or even I wouldn't even care to understand and how to pronounce them I, that's my ignorance but I ponder over the books all the time and I'd visually just absorb their the, the danger they put themselves in because they were from privileged backgrounds and they understood that there was an agenda going on to put the masses into war to fight for the few. And they came from the few. So there was a kind of like early whistleblower effect coming on from those kind of artists. You know, a lot of people slag them off for being bourgeois, you know, and privileged and all the rest of it. But, you know, somebody has to implement change, you know, and that's why I respect their work because they implemented a big visual change that was going on and to cut up books and to cut up, you know, and, and to reassemble you know, because books at that time was where you found your information and they were edited and editative, editorship was seen as high thinking, you know, so they were really breaking, yeah. they were culture jamming at that time. They were. And also, let's talk about violence. I've got a question. Mm. <laughs> it's just such a good question. I'm going to read it out. I, I did research. Here we are. I'm going to leave this bit in. I've got a question which yeah. I am proud of because I researched it and I just thought it was so interesting. So I was looking at all your cultural reference points and I found in an interview that you love this Italian-Argentinian artist from the mid-century. His name is... Lucio Fontana. I know you admire him. I watched a, a video of an art critic sort of decoding his work and talking about how it's got this inherent violence in because he basically slashed canvases and punctured them. But he talks about the necessary violence that you need to have in order to break through our familiarity yeah, with yeah. comfort. 100%. I thought it was so interesting. And I know that's what you do. Like, it makes so much sense when I'm looking at your T-shirt with the holes. Yeah. Let, let's talk about that. I thought it was a fascinating idea of you've, you've got to break stuff to rebuild it, yeah, right? And yeah. that is uncomfortable. Yeah. It depends how violently you engage. Um, but also, violence has terrible connotations that we want to avoid if we're decent humans. And yet, in this context, you're not talking about inflicting violence on another human. But this idea of violently disrupting status quos or... We're just saying uh, no. The word no means yeah. no. It's the shortest sentence in the world. And I've got it in my name, Noki. So my violence is creative. My violence is productive my violence is energy um that i put into pushing as i say i've always said pushing the brand beyond its remit at the time 
So as I say, if I wanted a Nike Adidas Felix tracksuit, I violently chopped up the, the, the individual unit and reformulated it and reassembled it in a way that I felt comfortable presenting it on my body as a modern day billboarder, as a raver. And my work's, that's been my work ever since, constantly. And it's breaking the nostalgia of the garments at that time, marketeered to you as a single unit. And my violence is to go beyond that, because that's also a violence. Being marketeered anything is, is a violence, you know? Um, being sold a, a, a fake lie around sportswear. Mm. It's funny we're talking about violence because actually before we started recording, we were talking about joy and how much of a positive thread there's always been in the work that you do. And I just think that really comes out in your shows. So I was at uh, your last show, London Fashion Week, Autumn 23. I was with a mutual friend. She brought me, Tamara Jinchik. She's lovely, been on this podcast. Tamara, yeah. She's fantastic. Uh-huh. So thank you. She's the reason I'm here. But I loved what you said in the show notes. I'm going to read it out. You said you wanted to make sustainability vivid and fun, exciting and alluring. You did it. It was a riot. Good. Because that's what I get from it, personally. Back in the days, it was a personal uniform. It was a freedom uniform I was creating for myself. Also this idea of it actually being fun. I mean, we're sitting in here and I can see some of your your masks from the show. Let's talk about what was in the show. So each model, you said to me before that you don't really think of models, you think of individuals and muses, but each one was carrying their own music. <laughs> yeah. So as they walked past, the music changed because they were carrying their own little ghetto yeah. plastics. And that was to represent the freedom of the rave. There were masks. I mean, Noki's very famous for the cloth masks and the T-shirt masks, but there were masks of Lego heads. <laughs> well, their, their brand identity, they were vintage um, masks you know, for, from one of my sponsors Lego Zig so he I said I'll put them up because their brand identity is rebuild the world so in a sense I'm re-custom building a fashion world well hang on your sponsor who I met him before he brought us some Jaffa Cakes mm. he's not actually from Lego what does he do? no no he's he's <laughs> fixated with Lego and he uses it he's ironic he does a culture jam within Lego exactly so he has you know, he, he's an avid collector so he had these in the studio and I thought well they'd be great masks they were so my, fun yeah my work is instinctive. I, I, I find myself creating these shows because I get joy from putting my hand to the left, my hand to the right and pulling a T-shirt out and going, God, how the hell did that happen? These colours are perfectly matched for the creative custom build that's in my head right now. So I've either tapped into serendipity as an energy and it's coming through my work, which you came to, and you saw shapes and forms and and ideas that do glow with sustainability. People that advertise brands that have zero waste, I, that infuriates me because I, even I've got waste, so I couldn't even say I've got zero waste. That's an, that's an impossibility. That's a complete and utter marketing. You know, when I read things like that, that, that gets to me. Do you know what I mean? Because the consumer buys into that as if they've bought into a yeah. purity. And anything that's designed and anything that's using, even organic, even hemp, even it, it's, it's Mother Earth is screeching you know, with her inability now even to produce these green textiles. You have now embraced that word sustainability. I know that you used it in 2008 in your logo or in your collection name, but you're actually now saying, okay, this might not have been the key driver of what I did originally, but what you did is the underpinning of what this sustainability movement around 
using waste textiles and upcycling is today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about that, because do, do you want to claim it? Do you want to say, I was there, I did it first? Or do you well, not I care who doing, did it I first? Never did, I, did it, did, I did something different with waste. Not everybody has always understood that you were doing this a long time ago. Whether or not that's because they're new journalists who haven't seen what happened 20 years ago, who knows. But now I feel like there is a kind of resurgent interest in anchoring you as like the start of upcycling, even though you don't like that word. Hypebeast said of your previous show, a tried and true member of the sustainability movement, arguably the founder of the word before it became a thing. It's very kind. Mm -hmm. um, but again, again, it's more branding, more words being lumped on and, and, and being kind of like held as being an advent. The only thing that's really true in my work to sustainability is that I use secondhand textiles you know I landfill drop every time I create something so everything in those shows is a landfill drop and an aspirational creative silhouette that anybody any student that's got an overlocker or a sewing machine could easily go to their wardrobe and copy it and do it themselves so taking it back to DIY do it yourself but I call it BIY build it yourself. What's your relationship with fashion like today? Um, I mean, you've done, over the years, you've done a lot of different Nokia's collaborations. I suppose Nokia's more relevant now than it ever was. Um, whether people see my aesthetic and see it as a little bit ad hoc, I don't know. But I know the sustainable, you know, badge that's being given to me is true. The custom To, to custom build is the only true sustainable way. Everywhere we look, it feels like they're commodifying DIY. You can buy fake graffiti runners you can buy fake mm. you can buy fake trashed balenciaga sneakers that cost sixteen thousand pounds but what were you saying to me before we were recording well i mean about if, if that's that fake pretend diy look so why don't you just get your graffiti pen out and write adidas or chanel or whatever on a t-shirt and that's the real DIY building of the essence of the youth culture in the, in the first place. So, so they you could they could take their power back. Yes, that's completely completely repower themselves via branding, one hundred percent. You just said any kid with a sewing machine could potentially do this. Let's end on that because it's so amazing what you want to build, which is essentially a bit of a school, a bit yeah. of a workshop format. Yeah, it's called Nest. The Nokia Nest is basically the Nokia education of sustainable textiles and technology teaching students how to build my famous builds that are being copied by designers and re-representing them as collaborative, you know, endeavours. I have always done that and I will always do that. You talked about how you would like the idea of hundreds of bedroom ateliers. Mm. Mm. Anyone could do it mm. at home. You don't mm. need money. You said to me before as well, you don't even need dead stock. You just use what's in your cupboard. Yeah, it's as simple as that. So anything that I've built on that catwalk is in a wardrobe of any youth culture. So to be able to open that closet and just get it. But what I need to do is show them where to put the scissors in. So when I bonded recently with Swarskov and Nick Garvin here, who's the ambassador for it, to do these shows, um, it was very similar as how they teach people to cut hair. So we're paralleling scissors, simple thing called pair of scissors. Because a lot of it's not even sewing. It could just be the cutting up or the creation of the webbing by plaiting. Or... Yeah, there's, there, there, but there's a tool everybody needs. And that's, first of all, is a pair of scissors. Destroy, though, rather than construct. 
Well, you have to enter destruction to rebuild, you know. Um, so that's where the nest comes. So I want to show them how to embrace the, the form of destruction to rebuild something positive. So instead of aspiring to buy Nokia in a sense, I want you to be aspired to building Nokia in a sense. I'm a simple textile collage artist. That's what I want to be and I want to stay that. I don't want to be the fashion designer, but I think there's a an army of fashion designers that could go on if they're shown how to cut and rebuild they can copy these Nokia ideas and go on to being the local customizer of their area for their youth culture you know thank you for having me thank you is that is that it then i reckon what do you think i don't know until you edit it <laughs> thank you for listening to wardrobe crisis you can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.